for equity investors looking for clues, I think that volatility in the fixed income in the rates market is a very strong clue as to if that starts to come down a little bit and starts to calm down a little bit, I think the conditions come back for some stronger equity market performance. Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Earlier this week, markets rallied on news of potential de-escalation in the Russia-Ukraine crisis, but uncertainty around the conflict, as well as inflation and interest rates, continues. In today's episode, portfolio managers Alfred Lee and Chris McKinney, along with your host Kevin Prince, compare U.S. and European equities and discuss discount bonds, the recent decline in trading volume, oil prices, and the implications of yield curve inversions. Before we hear from the team, please consider subscribing to Views from the Desk on your preferred podcast platform. And for many more ETF insights and resources, visit the new and improved Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. Well, welcome back to Views from the Desk. This is Kevin Prince from BMO Exchange Traded Funds. Each week you've been at this session of house, you would have known that our portfolio managers join us, provide us some perspective on the market. This week, I have Alfred Lee join us and Chris McKaney. Gentlemen, thanks again for joining us and thanks again for sharing your thoughts. Hey, guys, I think we see another busy week out there again. So let's just jump into some of the core questions that have come up. Um, Chris, let me start with you. You know, we're certainly seeing the markets rallying yesterday, come off a bit today in the DAX and still staying solid in the um, FTSE for that matter. But we're certainly seeing the international markets rallying yesterday. And of course, that was initially kicked off with that ceasefire discussion, maybe pulled off a bit more recently because that's maybe not coming to fruition. Now, we're certainly seeing that trade coming into vogue, the potential of that trade coming into vogue. Is that really kind of part of unlocking the value trade or is this just a reconditioning? Give us your thoughts there, Chris, on that, please. Sure thing, Kevin. And a couple of things in there. First of all, you know, you mentioned the value trade and that's, I I think you're referring to the relative value of Europe versus U.S. equities. Um, And that's something that we really started looking at in the second half of 2021 when the U.S. markets really continued to rally Europe, for the most part, was trading sideways um, the second half of 2021. And so that valuation gap started to become a, a little bit wider and, and have investors sort of taking a look at where the best allocation of resources would be going forward. Of course, then uh, early 2022 here, Russia invades Ukraine, and, and that kind of just goes away. That whole thought process gets pushed to the side. But if we take a look at how equity markets have responded to this invasion. First, you know, in the U.S., of course, we had a sharp market sell-off. But as you mentioned, we've had a very quick rebound here, and this rebound is still going. Um, and in the U.S. and in North American markets, we're pretty much almost back to where we were to end uh, 2021. So not too far down below um, the recent highs that we've seen. Whereas in the European and international equity markets, we saw a steeper sell-off um, in response to that invasion. And the rebound that we've seen, while certainly strong, has not been as strong uh, as we've seen in North American markets. So European markets still quite lower than their recent highs. 
and in particular relative to what we've seen in U.S. and North American equities. And so I think, yeah, you can start to look at this again. It's pretty difficult to, to chase some of those headlines and, you know, think, okay, well, I'm going to go into European equities. Um, they'll announce a ceasefire and then we'll get a nice big boost. Um, certainly hard to do that, hard to chase headlines. And again, um, you also alluded to the fact that we don't really know the substance behind some of those headlines also. So I do think if there's any sort of end um, to the war or any sort of um, light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, uh, you will see a big rally in risk assets, um, in particular those European equities. But until that time, I think investors should really look at that region for its merits on, on a long-term basis. Um, and really, there are a lot there. And again, that valuation gap is just, is just part of it. Um, but really, the best way, we think, to gain access to that region, you know, whether that's um, you know, hoping for that, that end to the war and a list of assets or just a long-term allocation, um, we think you know, we talk a lot about the, the benefits of quality uh, oriented equities. And probably, I think, in, in Europe, that's probably the best way to move forward, especially now when um, there is so much uncertainty still in that region. You know, I think, um, you know, the economy, the biggest uh, question there is, uh, what are consumers going to do in the face of very, very high energy prices? Um, you know, are, are consumers going to have to start choosing between eating their homes and, and eating out or um, you know, taking a, a, a short trip uh, or, or filling up their cars, right? So um, consumers might have to be faced with some of these uh, decisions going forward. So I think, again, going back to the quality-related equities is, is really the best way to play this. You're getting exposure to companies that are very cash-generative, have consistent earnings stream, and, you know, largely are, are, are somewhat unaffected by the gyrations of the, the economic cycle and, and, you know, how strong economic growth is going to be. You know, if you take a look at ZEQ, our European quality ETF, you get exposure to a lot of companies like Nestle, Unilever, L'Oreal, those, those large consumer staples companies that, again, execute very well, are very cash generative. Um, you know, these companies are, again, I won't say completely unaffected, but you know, a lot of their products are largely unaffected by, um, uh, by, by the war that's going on or, or by other factors that consumers, again, may have to decide where to spend their money. Um, in, that, in that consumer staple sector, that's, that's kind of a consistent um, demand for those type of products. At the same time, you know, large healthcare companies like Roche and, and GlaxoSmithKline uh, are part of this, this basket as well, part of this ETF. And so, again, you're getting a lot of global businesses um, that have very strong execution, very strong management teams, and, and are very cash generative. So this really helps you ride out any storms and any bumps along the way, because there will be bumps. As, as you say, you know, we, we saw a strong rally on, on the hopes of a ceasefire, um, and then that goes away a little bit when uh, it's, it's clear that, that ceasefire is not coming anytime soon. So gain exposure to that undervalued asset class, uh, that region of Europe, and do it in a, in a conservative way through those quality-oriented equities that are going to be able to to ride out those bumps while, while you're waiting for that economy to, to really turn around and lift off. Thanks for that, Chris. Appreciate the insights. From the pandemic and rising inflation to rate hikes and geopolitical conflict, investors have experienced extreme levels of volatility and uncertainty in recent months. In that environment, what can advisors do to mitigate investment risk and manage financial expectations? 
Join Portfolio Manager Chris Heeks as he explores ETF ideas to help your clients smooth the ride. Part one of a three-part monthly webinar series is streaming March 31st through June 30th. Register now at BMOETFsForum.com. It's Alfred Brownett here. We come to you, Alfred, because one thing I've been noticing in the marketplace is the yield to maturity and coupon on fixed income becoming more aligned. But we launched uh, discount bonds out in the past. What does that actually mean for the discount bond perspective? Give some thoughts on that if you can, Alfred, please. Sure. And, you know, that alignment of that yield to maturity to coupon has really been a result of, um, you know, significant rise in yields that we've seen across the yield curve. So uh, just to point out, you know, when you look at the 10-year government of Canada, for example, uh, since early March, um, when you look at, you know, how much it's moved, it's, it's up about 80 basis points. It's up about, uh, up to about 2.5% right now. So it's pretty significant move in, in yields. Um, so I think even though the rising rates have been a negative for the bond market over the short term, um, over the long run, I think it is healthy for the fixed income market in general. Um, I think when you look at, you know, what, the common complaint about the fixed income market over the last three to five years has been is that you know, yields have been too skinny, they've been too low, um, and it doesn't really compensate investors for taking on you know, the real risk um, of duration. So I think you know, what we've been seeing in the bond market over the last three to four months, even though it may be painful over the short term, um, I think over the long term, it does provide um, a natural recalibration to the market. So um, you know, the other common complaint, as you pointed out, of the fixed income market in, in, in recent years is because rates have grinded to historic lows, uh, coupon rates have far exceeded yield to maturity rates. So, you know, if you're holding fixed income in a registered accounts, it doesn't really cause an issue. Uh, but if you're holding fixed income in a taxable account, so a non-registered account, it's made fixed income really tax inefficient, right? So I think the recent rise in bond yields has been good for the bond market, as I pointed out. When you look at the yield to maturity and coupon rates um, for ZAG, which is our aggregate bond ETF, for example, uh, yield to maturity is about 2.9% right now. Coupon rate is 2.8%, so pretty much in line. So I think when you look at you know, even plain vanilla ETFs at this point, they're much more tax efficient than where they were even five to six months ago. Um, you know, when you point out, you know, you asked about discount bond ETFs, um, you know, when you look at discount bond ETFs and plain vanilla ETFs, they're, they're pretty much in line now where, you know, both are equally tax efficient. Uh, I think the good news for discount bond ETFs is that the eligible bonds for the discount bond universe becomes much more diverse and larger at this point. Um, so rates continue to rise. Um, you know, obviously, discount bonds and, and plain vanilla ETFs start to start to converge. Uh, one thing I will point out, however, is that if we do see a market downturn and if central banks are forced to drop rates again and, you know, bonds start trading at a premium, discount bonds are still going to be much better positioned. So I think if you're holding bonds outside of registered accounts, I think the general rule of thumb is that it's more practical to hold the discount bond ETFs in those accounts. So, um, you know, the, the the one good thing is that investors don't have to worry about you know, the yield to maturity and the coupon being misaligned if they're in a discount bond ETF. So when you look at ZDB, which is our discount bond ETF, it's still a good alternative to ZAG and non-registered accounts. ZSDB is still a good alternative to ZSP. And ZCDB, which is our corporate bond discount uh, bond ETF, still a good alternative to ZCB for non-registered accounts. So, um, you know, as I pointed out, 
I think if you're holding it in a non-registered account, it's just one less worry that you have to think about. Thanks for that, Alfred. Appreciate the insights there. And let me come back in a bit. Let me, let me shift gears here and talk to Chris for a bit. Hey, Chris, one thing we've been hearing about and noticing is that volume of trading is coming down, reportedly down across the board. You know, in periods of lighter volume, where would one find additional insights on the market? Give us your thoughts on that, please. Sure, and that, that's something probably, uh, you know, most investors face you know, almost annually every summer, you know, as we start to look towards the summer season here as well. Um, you know, volumes do tend to to drop off. And as you say, even currently, they've been a little lighter than normal. And so, you know, for investors looking at trying to find uh, additional clues as to how the market is positioned, which way the market might be leaning, um, you, know, we, you know, we spend a lot of time in the derivatives markets and the volatility markets. So we take a look at that quite a bit. And that's through, you know, our, all of our covered call and option overlay programs that, that we manage here. Um, but also, you know, just by being in that market and, and taking a look at it every day, it does add that additional layer of, uh, of information on how the market is leaning. So a couple of different ways you can look at it. First of all, um, you know, averages like the VIX. Um, I think everyone's familiar with the VIX index. That is, um, you know, an indication of expected market volatility in the S&P 500 over the next 30 days. And so just taking, first of all, taking a look at the level of the VIX um, gives you an idea of, of how uncertain investors are of, of, of how things are going to play out uh, going forward. Just one rule of thumb, uh, if you do take a look at the VIX and just see a number and not really understand what that means, um, a, a rule of thumb for the VIX is if, if the VIX is around 20, um, that indicates the market's expectations of a 1%, up to 1% daily move in the S&P 500. Um, and if the VIX is 40, that would imply a 2% daily move. And so that's kind of how you can take a look at that. And so obviously, the higher the number there, the more uncertain uh, market participants are on the future, not just the direction of uh, the markets going forward, but the, the size of the move uh, in markets going forward. And so that's one level um, that you can you can take a look at to, to, to gauge uncertainty or certainty uh, in the markets. Another part of the volatility markets you can take a look at is what investors are doing with those derivatives and with those options. You know, are, are investors more concerned right now about buying downside protection and therefore they're concerned about uh, downside risks? Or are investors leaning more towards buying upside calls or, or upside participation and therefore thinking markets might rally from here. So taking a look at that balance, you know, we saw late February and, and early March uh, as markets were selling off, there was a high demand for further hedges. People were buying downside hedges. And so we're very concerned about additional downside there. Um, and very quickly, as we as we saw in a part of, partly with this uh, rebound that we're seeing, that very quickly changed to you know upside participation, and now now we're a bit more balanced in, in terms of traditional or sort of historical averages in terms of how much is being done on each side. But that's another clue as to how investors can um, you know kind of gauge which way is the market leaning, what what are uh, market participants more more concerned about, and then just one other um, indication I would reference here is that taking a look at the volatility markets outside of equities. So looking across assets and in particular in the rates market and the fixed income market. Uh, and what we're seeing right now is very, very high volatility and expect, con expected continued volatility 
uh, in the fixed income market and in the rates market as interest rates continue to move um, significantly. And Alfred talked a little bit about how much they've moved so far this year. Um, but again, that expectation looking like that is going to continue to happen uh, over the next few months. And so, um, you know, one point to make is that equity markets never perform very well, or I shouldn't say never, you know, you never say never, but generally equity markets don't perform very well uh, when there's such high volatility in, in the interest rate market. That's not to say equities can't go up. Of course they can, but there's generally not a very large growth period um, that happens when interest rate volatility is so high. And that's because really uh, equities take their cues, their valuation cues from the fixed income market and everything is sort of priced off of that. So if the fixed income market continues to move, it's hard to pin down a, a proper valuation for equities as well. So I think uh, for equity investors looking for clues, I think that volatility in the fixed income in the rates market uh, is a very strong clue as to if that starts to come down a little bit and starts to calm down a little bit, I think the conditions um, come back for, for some stronger equity market performance. Um, but, you know, probably limited upside to some degree while that, that stays very high, which we're seeing right now. So that would argue for strategies like low volatility. Um, you know, I just mentioned quality previously in terms of those type of equities you want exposure to in this kind of market. Um, or even dividend strategies that give you that consistent income stream. That's the get paid while you wait sort of approach. You know, if we're not thinking there's going to be huge equity market growth, uh, you might as well be invested in an area that's going to pay you regular dividends and, and give you some sort of consistent return stream um, while you're waiting for that sort of overhang from the fixed income market to sort itself out. So that's a few different ways to, to look at the derivatives market and the volatility markets and, and determine, you know, which way to, to position your portfolios. Oh, thanks for that, Chris. And of course, I guess if volatility is up, inherently that means there's a more premium inside products like cover calls that benefits from that. So that's another aspect. You mean your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so generally, when uh, uh, in most of our option overlay strategies, whether that's covered calls or put rights or, or the premium yield strategies, for the most part, we're selling options. And so, as you say, when volatility is higher. Um, that's the major input into those option prices. And so you can get a higher price from those from those options. And so, as I mentioned, you know, if you're just looking to, to calm, this, uh, calm the volatility in the market, you go to low volatility strategies or, or dividend strategies, um, you make a good point that um, anything that is generating income out of that uh, volatility in the market is, is going to benefit from that as well. So covered call strategies uh, and premium yield as well should do, should do well in that sort of environment. Perfect, Chris. Thanks for your insight tonight. Streaming now, new videos from BMO and Brookfield that dive deep into the BMO Brookfield Global Renewables Infrastructure and BMO Brookfield Global Real Estate Tech Mutual Funds and ETF Series. Tickers GRNI and TOWR. Get the inside scoop from portfolio managers as they discuss these innovative solutions. And if you have any questions, be sure to bring them to the upcoming BMO Brookfield Interactive Q&A event on April the 6th at 2 p.m. Eastern. To view the videos and register for the Q&A, find the links in this podcast's show notes or look for the special email in your inbox. Alfred, let me come back to you. One thing we've been talking about and hearing about out there is oil prices increasing and volatility in the last couple of days. You know, 
what's driving this? And then more specifically, what does that mean for ETFs like uh, ZDL in the marketplace? When you look at oil prices, uh, definitely has been very volatile over the last couple of trading sessions. Um, so when I look at the intraday chart on um, WTI, which is West, uh, West Texas Intermediate, uh, the North American benchmark for crude, um, on Monday had a 9% intraday move. Tuesday had an 8.5% intraday move. Um, most of this has been largely headline driven um, based on what's coming out of you know, the Russian Ukraine headlines. Um, so this week, oil prices have pulled back just because there was optimism that you know, Russia was looking to de-escalate the war in Ukraine. Um, in the last few days, you know, um, the market's been focused on, you know, Russia offering, you know, quote-unquote, fundamentally cutting back its military operations in northern Ukraine. Um, so I think, you know, as Chris pointed out, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of headlines, but it's it's really, as he pointed out, it's, it's really tough to gauge, you know, what the substance behind these headlines are. So this morning, again, you know, when you look at oil prices, they're back up again because there's no breakthrough in terms of the peace talks. So oil is up, you know, when I looked at it this morning, is up, you know, two and a half dollars back to $106 per, per barrel. Um, so I think if you're invested in energy equities, whether it's through an ETF or through energy stocks, um, I think if you've held it over the last couple of months, if you've, you know, if you're lucky enough to hold it over the last year, year and a half, you've done exceptionally well on those positions. So um, just looking at ZEO, uh, from the market bottom in, in 2020, it's up a 307% total return. So that's a pretty impressive return. Uh, it's essentially three times the return over the TSX uh, over the same period. Uh, but when you look at the look for energy, I'd still say it's still very positive, even though we've seen a pretty significant rally in, in ZEO and other energy-related stocks as well. Even if we were to get a resolution in Russia and Ukraine, I still think oil prices will remain elevated. And the reason why is because when you look at, you know, the structural kind of issues that were causing this demand and supply imbalance, those are going to remain. And then, you know, when you think of oil prices, you know, around that $80, $90 per barrel mark, I think over the long term, that's going to be healthier for the market. It's going to be better for ZEO. Um, if prices are going to be remain, you know, if they're going to remain more stable, uh, it doesn't necessarily choke off demand. So think of, you know, if oil prices were to rise to, you know, $140, $150 uh, per barrel, um, people are going to be driving less, people are going to be uh, traveling less. So I think, you know, if we do get a de-escalation in what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, I think long-term it is healthier for the energy market. So one way I would play it, um, I highlighted this on the um, on this call a couple of weeks ago, is essentially, you know, just taking the house's money. So, if you if you essentially hold energy related investments and you know you're up 10 to 15 percent anytime you have profits you essentially take the profits reallocate it to a broad-based etf like zcn which is our SPTSX etf a low ball etf like uh, zlb um, i think that's the best way to play it right now i think you still need to maintain energy exposure but i think going forward you know by you know, every so often taking profits off the table and reallocating, I think that's the best way to play it. I think, you know, as I mentioned, I think even if we were to get a resolution out of Russia and Ukraine, energy prices are still going to remain buoyant. Uh, keep in mind, you know, you have the um, summer driving months coming up, you have return to office, you have the easing of the COVID restrictions, all of which I think are going to be positive for energy prices and ZEO in general. Well, thanks for that, Alfred. It's good insight around the 
oil and gas market. Hey, let me stay with you for a little bit if I can, because one of the indicators that a lot of people watch, and maybe give some insights on this, is the, the 10 and the 2, right? And we've seen that's come very close, and actually sometimes I heard it actually crossed over. You give us some thoughts on that, but what does that mean? Is that a concern for the yield curve is what I'm talking about here, the 10 and the 2? Yeah, we did get an inversion in the yield curve uh, in the U.S. market. In Canada, I think we're about 10 to 15 basis points away from a, from an inversion of the yield curve. Um, but I think it is somewhat of a concern. I think it is something that investors should be looking at. Uh, anytime you get an inversion of the yield curve, it tends to be a pretty reliable indicator of an upcoming economic recession or a downturn of the equity markets. Um, I was talking to a client yesterday and they asked me whether the equity market was ignoring the potential inversion of the yield curve. And you know, my response was, they probably are to a degree, but I, I don't think investors really have a choice here. So, you know, when you look at, you know, the different parts of your portfolio and portfolio positioning in general, um, you can't really overweight bonds right now because inflation and rising interest rates are, you know, a negative for bonds. You can't sit in cash because inflation is going to erode capital. So you really have to overweight equities at this point. And when you look at it historically, during an inflationary environment, equities have tended to outperform as well. Um, so another thing to note is typically when you do get an inversion of the yield curve, uh, the equity market doesn't really turn over until a year or two years later. So there is uh, to run even if we were to get an inversion of the yield curve. Um, one thing I would point out is that you know, even though investors may want to overweight equities at this point, it still makes sense to be diversified. Uh, you shouldn't be forgetting about fixed income. So I think late February was a good example of this when we, you know, when the initial invasion happened, you know, ETFs like ZAG, uh, ZGB, which is our government bond ETF, uh, they essentially rallied and really helped stabilize a portfolio and really offset, you know, that equity market risk. Um, but in terms of, you know, Bank of Canada, policy from a policy standpoint, and this goes for the Fed as well. Um, you know, the near inversion of the yield curve or the inversion of the yield curve, I think really limits how aggressively central banks can act at this point. So I think, you know, the Fed and the Bank of Canada, what they might do over the next couple of months is that they may, you know, hike rates in the April meeting, the June meeting, and potentially take a pause at that point. Um, keep in mind, you know, anytime you have a change in monetary policy, whether you're dropping rates or increasing rates, it usually takes a couple of months in order to take effect on the economy. So, um, you know, after a couple of meetings, the Bank of Canada may want to take a pause. Um, I think after, you know, raising rates for three successive meetings, um, it's going to restore credibility in terms of the central banks. The market is going to take the central bank seriously. Um, and at that point, it's going to have you know, have the ability to use forward guidance in order to tame inflation um, in order. And I, I think at that point, it's going to be much more effective in taming inflation because rather than hiking rates, which causes the yield curve to invert, um, using forward guidance causes a steepening of the yield curve instead. Um, overall, um, I think, you know, the potential uh, inversion of the yield curve definitely is a sign that investors need to be a little bit cautious at this point. I think what investors may want to consider is de-risking equities. So think of things like low volatility, uh, ZLB and ZLU, which is our Canadian equity and U.S. equity mobile ETFs, respectively. Um, another one that uh, Chris noted was the uh, quality factor. So even though quality has underperformed year to date, um, it is making somewhat of a comeback over the last couple of weeks. So you know when the market 
kind of started rallying on March 11th, uh, just looking at ZUQ relative to the S&P 500 and relative to the S&P TSX, it's outperformed both of those benchmarks. So, um, again, I think low ball and quality are two factors you may want to consider at this point in terms of de-risking the portfolio. And also another thing to note, as I mentioned earlier, is you shouldn't forget about bond at this point, even though a lot of people are overweighting equities. Um, it still makes sense to have exposures like Zag in your portfolio. Well, thanks for that, Alfred. Appreciate your insights again, especially when you have these indicators out there that are flashing uh, different viewpoints, and it's good to get your thoughts. And, and for that matter, too, yours too, Chris, on your perspectives in the overall market. So thank you both gentlemen for joining us. I'm going to thank the audience for taking the time to join us again for this session. We're going to be back next week. One thing, if you want to join us over the next 90 days, is we actually have a special session, a video called Smooth Out the Ride. It's really provided some investment perspective different thoughts to help to smooth out the ride this, this, over this period. And if you're looking to join us for that, just reach out to respected ETF specialist, and we'll get you enrolled in that special session hosted by our friends, uh, Renee Dinter and Chris Eek. So hopefully you can join us for that session too. Thank you so much today. Have yourself a good week ahead. Cheers. Thank you to Kevin Prince, Alfred Lee, and Chris McKaney for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. Today, we heard about the BMO MSCI Europe High Quality Hedge to Canadian Dollar Index ETF ticker ZEQ, which offers exposure to cash generative European producers of consumer staples. Our experts also discussed the BMO Equal Weight Oil and Gas Index ETF ticker ZEO, which may continue to benefit from high oil prices buoyed by summer travel and the easing of COVID-related restrictions. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, check out the episode notes, contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or visit the new and improved Canadian ETF dashboard at bmoetfs.ca. That's bmoetfs.ca. The viewpoints expressed by the portfolio managers represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investments should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statement that necessarily depends on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.